Welcome to the Rounds to Residency podcast, brought to you by Med School Coach. Each episode, get clinical rotation advice and tips to prepare for your externships and residency in healthcare. We interview preceptors and physician educators who will prepare you for your rotation and improve your clinical experience. Now, here's your host, Chase DeMarco. Welcome back. And today we have Dr. Forrest Jones. He's been a family physician for over 40 years, received his doctorate from Northwestern Feinberg School of Medicine, and completed his family medicine residency at Cook County Hospital in Chicago. Forrest, great to have you on the show. Glad to be here, Chase. So how about we tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? You've been a family physician for so long now, you probably have a lot of experiences and advice to tell people, especially as we're probably by the time this starts going to be entering the new residency stage and everyone's starting to get placed. What are some things that you've experienced and maybe that the audience can gain some insights from, especially if they're going into a family medicine residency? I would say one thing, I would give the same advice that I received, which is don't give up <laughs> <laughs> because certainly having come through, you know, four years of medical school, I do wonder when will this grind ever end? You know, and you're trying to look for the rainbow at the end, the pot at the end of the rainbow, so to speak. So it is there. Uh, a long path. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Things are different, of course, now. Practice styles are different. When I was coming through, there are a lot of opportunities for private practice, a solo practice, for example. As I understand now, residents coming out now are we looking, when they finish their training for employee practice. And I'm not sure if the training is really geared toward that or acknowledging that or not. That's just something about the practice environment once you finish a residency. One thing about the residency that's interesting is you get an idea to sort out. My training was, of course, my residency was in family medicine, which is primary care. It's a generalist practice, did not specialize in any one particular field. We were called ourselves a specialist breath and not depth. And so, and that was attractive to me because when I was going through my medical school rotations, the reason why I chose family medicine was because I couldn't make up my mind. I liked all of the rotations I was going through. And as I was finishing and had to start making up my mind about a residency, that's when I learned about family medicine. And I thought, oh, this is my golden opportunity. And I just jumped for it. I think there is certainly a strong need for primary care. For those of you interested in primary care, definitely go for it. But even in primary care, you find yourself focusing on certain areas more than others, partly depending on the practice environment you are in, the community that you might be serving in, your own particular interests. I find a number of family medicine graduates, for example, ended up going to urgent care. Others preferred more ob Others prefer more pediatrics. I myself ended more toward geriatrics. Yeah, it's one thing I seem to see as a commonality in all the family physicians I've talked to, whether it be interviewing on this show or just talking on social media or phone calls, is they all kind of felt the same way that there were too many areas that they were involved in that they enjoyed. So they wanted to be more of that generalist to get to utilize a lot of different clinical settings and reach a much wider base and have both pediatric and adult patients, which you don't really get in a lot of the other specialties. So I think that's greatly needed and perhaps underappreciated since there seems to be 
somewhat of a, a false negative stigma with generalists and with family medicine, it seems. Two factors also that played in my desire for family medicine. One was I really liked behavioral and psychiatry rotation I went through. But I didn't want to do exclusively psychiatrists. I didn't want to just work with the mind. I did want the physical contact, doing physical exams, looking at other organ systems and so forth. So I enjoyed the behavioral aspect, but I did not want to be there exclusively. The other thing is that family medicine takes note of the patient as part of their own system. So you have the individual patient that you're taking care of, but you're also looking at family dynamics, social dynamics that are part of the patient's reality and their story. And those types of things interested me as well. And family medicine seemed to give me an opportunity to include that in my care of the patients where other specialties didn't do that as much. I think pediatrics and internal medicine, which are also primary care specialties, do take more of that into account as well. But family practice seemed to really approach that in a deliberate and intentional way. Yeah, I guess you don't really think of psych as part of family practice so much. When I hear about it, I think of two scenarios, either like the private practice clinic or maybe urgent care, and then the hospitalist family practitioners. But I guess that is something that you should be aware of too, is you can kind of reach into a little of everything, including psychology or psychiatry of the patients that you're seeing, because you are the first line. You have to see everyone before any specialist generally does. i tell you a story. I remember a particular case in my practice. There was a senior female. I don't remember exactly, but I think she was in her early 80s at that time, diabetic, under great control. She, had, she was very compliant. She took her medicines. She followed her treatment plan, followed her diet very well, had no need to change her medicines for pretty much all the time I'd seen her. So it'd been more like a couple of years. And all of a sudden, her blood sugars were going out of control. And I started, and she was on insulin, so I started increasing her insulin. I said, okay, sometimes things change. You just have to adjust. Then week by week, I was increasing her insulin. And I thought, wait a minute what is going on here? So I asked her. It took me two or three visits to finally start to figure out there must be something else going on. Turned out that she had two granddaughters who had been a problem in their own home setting. Their mother was not being able to discipline them or manage them. And they were 15 years old, twins. And so she decided to help out and have them come live with her. And that was about three months prior. And they were just a real handful. These young ladies were just insisting on having things their own way. They wanted to come and go as they wanted to. And of course, for that generation, for my patient, that was not acceptable. And she basically had completely gotten away from her own self-care, trying to manage these daughters, these granddaughters. And so I had to ask her, this is not working for you. You're going to end up in the hospital or even worse. And I think you ought to consider some other living situation for your granddaughters. This is beyond your ability. And I said, what do you think about actually having them go back to their mother or someone else in the family? Because this is really endangering your health at this time. And so she agreed to do that. And. Then after that, her diabetes was 
back under control. And that was an example of how social settings can definitely interfere with your own managing of a patient. Yeah, it's amazing what stress does to the body and throwing all of your current <laughs> homeostatic properties and medications out of whack. Well, all right, I want to get to sort of the main topic of today's interview, and that's really end-of-life care. It's not something we've really covered before, and I don't think a lot of medical schools really cover. So perhaps you can give us just a brief overview of what end-of-care life really means to you and what types of experiences that students might want to consider if they're thinking of being a part of this type of patient care? That's a good point. And some specialties probably will not have hardly any need for this within their professional pathology, of course, think of radiology, and others may not have to confront it directly as part of their routine care. But certainly in primary care, you do. Intensivists will be certainly faced with that in the hospital setting, hospitalists. I can see that as well if you pursue oncology, cardiology, pulmonology. These often end up in the intensivist settings, but also dealing with patients with end-stage disease. One thing about end-of-life care is, let me start with, even though your listeners are still in training, you are looking forward to the time where you will be taking care of patients, and you want to learn how to take care of yourself. One thing about end-of-life discussions is you do want to be able to process some of your own feelings in the context of the discussion, of the conversation, because first, you're helping your patient or their caregivers go through difficult emotions, and then you're facing some of your own as well. That being said, though, there's a couple of different settings for end-of-life conversations you can think of. Most of the time, we think of settings where someone has a very serious downturn in the course of their chronic disease, or they may get a new diagnosis of a very bad disease. They might find out, for example, that they've got a late-stage cancer. Then you're talking about a setting where you have to have a crisis family conference. When we think about end-of-life conversations, that's pretty much what most of us think about. And that was pretty much my experience as well before I decided to take on this challenge of being more intentional in my own practice. You'd have a patient who either would have a sudden crisis, maybe a fall, a stroke, where they're unconscious. And now you have to have a conversation with the family about what the treatment plan, what are the goals of treatment at this point? And this is pretty difficult because you do have to prepare for it, but emotionally you still are kind of a jumble and it's always good to have support around you, your social work if you have one, your nurse who might have also been involved with the patient care. So that's a setting we normally think of. What if we see now, and I found this is true for me in my own primary care practice, is that type of conversation tended to fall more often on the emergency room physician, on the hospitalist, maybe the intensivist and the intensive care unit, because this patient might have had this event or this turn downturn at home, and you direct them to go straight to the hospital, and then they go to the hospital. They get there and they will run into one of these specialists who will then find that patient does not have an advanced care plan, 
They have not prepared for this. Their doctor has not had this conversation with them. That would have been me. And here they are kind of with a hot potato. And that was one thing that led me to try to be more intentional in my own practice. Also, I was a proxy for my own parents. And so I was the one who would, they had selected to be the medical decision maker if they were not able to speak for themselves. I imagine all of your listeners will be in the same situations. It's funny that it seems that anybody who works in a hospital setting, even if it's housekeeping, they get chosen by their family to be the proxy. And I guess their families think that because they are in the healthcare system, they might have better understanding or even a network of people who can help with uh, their care in that setting. That seems to be a funny thing that I found. But that was the case for me, proxy. And when my parents, they've gone on now, they've passed on. But I found that during their last year, for example, I was not having these conversations routinely with my own patients. And I thought, I need to change that. I need to really start being proactive and initiating these conversations because basically I would wait until events would force my hand. That's partly because there are several barriers to having an end-of-life conversation. One is lack of training, and you mentioned that. We don't really have that in a dedicated way right now. At least I didn't have it, and I don't know if that's changed, but it sounds from what you're saying that's pretty much still true. So lack of training, lack of incentive. So you may not have the time or the financial compensation. Medicare has now, they will pay now for one advanced care planning conversation a year. So that part of the incentive has changed. Another thing I find in talking to my colleagues as well is fear of patient reluctance. Patients fear of having these conversations as well. So those are some barriers that we do see to having these conversations routinely. I would say that my Caucasian patients tended to have more advanced care plans. They tended to be better prepared with a document that I could just scan and put in the chart. My non-white patients, basically it would be Hispanic, Latinx, and African-American would be less prepared in that way. And more frightened of having these conversations, I think part of it had to do as well with less medical literacy, less understanding of medical terms, medical interventions, decision options that they might have, and so forth. And sometimes even distrust of the system. So those are the barriers you might face. Clinical preceptors are busy professionals as is, and those wishing to give back to the academic community can be overburdened by scheduling and paperwork. With the Find a Rotation platform, physicians looking to precept students can register for their free account, control calendar availabilities, set preferences, and be done. Our system automates and simplifies much of the process. Register for your free account now by visiting findarotation.com for more information. That's Find a Rotation, your medical and healthcare clinical rotations platform. Do you know if there's a difference in those rates depending on the race of the physician? I'm not sure. I have not really looked into that. You mean in terms of initiating the conversations? Yes. That's a good question. I have not looked into that. As I've talked to doctors, though, I hear pretty much the same concerns and barriers. I think those doctors who tend to be more proactive might be those who tend to work in the settings as hospitals, intensivists, and 
emergency room physicians, just because in practice, having to do it so often, there's less of a barrier to them. They just have more experience. I think it may be more of training and experience than anything else. But I could look into that. That's a very good question to look up. Yeah, I'd be curious to know. I mean, I had two very stressful situations along what you've just discussed. The first one was when I began my first clinical rotations because my parents were divorced and my mother ended up in the hospital. I was the eldest child, so I had to be the one to make the decisions, unfortunately. So that was very stressful. And then during my pulmonary and critical care rotation was another one where, like you just mentioned, that's one of the emergency sort of situations where you're going to have to have these discussions with the family. And, and that's very difficult when you have, you know, I think there are probably eight family members in the waiting room there when we had to go in. And there's a certain process that he mentioned that I can't remember now because it was a few years ago of how to approach the family to deliver that news. Do you know any good processes for that that you hear are very effective? Well, first, gather yourself. Give yourself a little time to take a breather, calm yourself. As I'm sure was your experience in your own practice as an intensivist, you're already really busy just running around taking care of patients and taking care of things. And then now you find that you've got to have this conversation. You do have to collect yourself first. You do not want to rush in, throw everything out there. You want to gather yourself first. You want to be calm. One thing I would do also would be, even though I'm aware of the fact I'm busy, I'm in a lot of things going on, I tell myself it takes as long as it takes. It takes as long as it takes because it's not just my agenda, but it's really the family's agenda. I'm really there to serve them. After that, you want to collect your information. You want to have a reasonable grasp of the clinical events the medical events, the disease process, and so forth. You want to have an understanding of how do we get to this point? And in a way, I always wanted to be able to explain that and understand that myself from the disease point of view and also from the personal story point of view as much as I could. By personal story, I wanted to be able to have, and sometimes it's one thing if, I'm the primary physician. I've been taking care of this patient for a while. I'll know their story. Other times, I just have to gather information from the records and then also and plan on getting that information from the family. And that becomes one avenue of engaging the family as well in a very real way about the story. So then you go in with the family. You do want to make eye contact. You want to greet everyone. You want to basically act like, okay, this is like a family gathering. It's not a pleasant one, but we're all here for the purpose of healing of some sort. If the person themselves has a very poor prognosis and healing does not mean returning to a reasonable and independent life, that's one thing. If that's the case, then really talking about healing for the family, helping them to come to some type of terms with this life event that is really part of living, dying. And it's part of the family dynamic as well. So you want to greet everyone and just say, this is an important time for us all to be together to try to bring some type of healing and understanding. Then I like to find out what do they understand? 
one problem I've had when I was still learning was answering a lot of questions that were never asked. And that can create confusion sometimes. It could waste a lot of time because I may spend a lot of time giving what I think is a very thorough explanation, and that's not even what they wanted to know. Then they say, well, doctor, I really wanted to know about this. And you say, oh, I really have to start all over again because I was really going down the wrong track. But by engaging them from the beginning, what do you understand uh, that's happened? What do you know about, for example, you know Ms. Jones had a problem with your heart. What do you know about that? What was your experience? And then you let the family members talk. And number one, that breaks the ice. Number two, it gets them engaged. Number three, you're gaining information about their understanding as well as something about their values, what their expectations might be. And sometimes you'll find that what they were understanding about the condition was not accurate. And so now you know that, okay, I can speak to that and have them respond to me on that basis. Also, while I'm asking about what happened, I'll definitely point out even the quiet people, members of the family who are not saying anything. You want to ask them to, what do you think? And if they really are reticent and really don't want to be involved, you kind of let it go. But having reached out to them, you've let them know that you've acknowledged them and you respect them. And they're really part of the decision, even though they're not saying anything. And you're kind of also getting a chance to see if there's any family dynamics, because at that time, you still want to confirm who is the major decision maker. And does everybody seem to be okay with that? Because you want to go in more detail later on with the major decision maker. But at the same time, you really want the family, everybody there to be able to have a consensus. You don't want a situation where the main decision maker, and this has to be confirmed in the record as well. You want to be sure that all your records show that this is the proxy. This is the person who really can make decisions on behalf of their loved one who's not able to speak for themselves. But you want to be sure there's no major conflicts with other family members. Sometimes this will come up and you want to be able to understand what the basis of that is and get that resolved because you want this to be a healing situation. Sometimes there are family dynamics that you have no control over, of course, but at least you want a working situation that everyone accepts. Only rarely will you have someone who is, quote unquote, troublemaker. But if you approach it properly, you don't. You can really ameliorate those types of issues. Once you get a feeling for what everyone's understanding is, then you can start talking about the facts of the case. And as you see them, so I might start out with, you know, when Ms. So-and-so, when I first met her, let's say I just met this person in the hospital, this was my impression. This was my impression as a person. I thought she was, you know, when we talked, I really felt she reminded me of my grandma, you know, something like that, that shows that you kind of connected with her as a person. That helps engage the family, but also helps engage you because you are dealing with a person. You're not dealing just with a case. You're not dealing with a liver. You're not dealing with a heart. You're not dealing with a lung. You're not dealing with a colon cancer. You know, you're dealing with a person. And so when you start talking like this, you're not only showing the family that you're engaged but you're also connecting with them and you're, you're bringing these stories together. And having thought in advance 
you know, when you were preparing for this conversation, I would be thinking about those things when I first met her. This was my impression. And I'll tell them I thought this was going to be the case. I thought that the condition was going to improve this way, but it didn't. So I'm letting them know about my own decision making, what my own expectations were as we were going through this. Or it might be different. It might be when she first came in, I saw her. I could not arouse her. She was not responsive. I was very worried. And what you see now is pretty much what I unfortunately was expecting. We were hoping things would change, but there was just too much that had happened against her. You know, you've got your story. You're explaining the story. You're talking about your own process. And I think that's explaining your thought process as well helps them to kind of feel it's not just a big black box because I'm sure as you know to patients medical institutions are intimidating and sometimes when you get a lot of resistance from family members or what sounds like unreasonable expectations part of it is because they are trying to find a way to fight through what they think is a huge, intimidating uh, system with a lot of black boxes that give them results and conclusions, and you have to do this, you have to do that, and they have no understanding of where that comes from, what the purpose of that is, and how that's supposed to be helping. Long story short, what I just mentioned is also a way of building a team, a family team, because you want everyone on board with a treatment plan. You want to be able to say, okay, going forward from here, what do you expect to happen? What are your goals? What do you want to happen? What do you want to see happen? And sometimes you will be getting some very unrealistic expectations. Sometimes people will actually say, I expect a miracle. God's going to do this. And you can't ignore that. You can't poo-poo that. But you do want to try to manage the expectation and say, I understand what you mean. We're all hoping for the best, but I just want to let you know, these are some things that will likely happen. And here's some decisions that you'll likely be facing. How do you feel about that? And you want to explore what they're thinking, because as people talk through things and express even doubts, emotion, anger, they're actually processing. They're actually having opportunities to come on board with a reasonable treatment plan. If the outcome is this person is just not going to make it, this person, for these reasons, and when they kind of review the story, and you're also including elements that they've provided, and you can even ask, has anyone else in the family been through something like this? Um, And they might talk about a relative, a neighbor, a friend who had a terminal case like this, and you encourage them to talk through their feelings about that. Because you want people to kind of get immersed in this process because you want a treatment plan that will be realistic, that the family can accept, and that the family can defend, especially for the major decision maker. You don't want a situation where that person is left hanging in the wind. They're making very difficult decisions. And then when the loved one finally expires, that other family members attack that decision maker saying, you should have done this, you should have done that, making them feel guilty. And I've seen that happen. 
And so these are some steps that I would take to try to help the family come up with the goals of treatment. And that can be hospice, especially in terminal situations, that they not only accept, um, but can actually defend to others who were not there. Hope I didn't wrap up on too long. <laughs> I know I talked a long time. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a succinct summary, and maybe it could be phrased in first prepare your own conversation and expectations for the family, then go in and see what the family's understanding is of the situation and how you can make it more realistic potentially. Third might be to get everyone together working as a team. And fourth would be basically to get everyone in agreement so that no one suffers any repercussions that's afterwards. That's a teamwork. So when you mentioned team, that, that's yeah. pretty much okay. it. Yeah. Still part of that one. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you'll prepare yourself and then prepare the family. And then you're working through a solution together. You are the consultant. It's not walking in and just saying it has to be this way. You are the advisor. You need to really draw out from them what they need to know to make these difficult decisions. Well, that's definitely a great summary there, I think. And it's a difficult thing for even uh, long-term practitioners to really go through. So I think any extra advice and wisdom on the topic is something that can benefit all of the audience and anyone they come in contact with anymore. Do you have any last-minute words of wisdom? teaching pearls, anything like that? I'll just try to keep this brief. One thing I found was that I was not having an advanced care planning conversation like I wanted to for all my patients. I would schedule an appointment, but patients would be late. They would reschedule. I'd be running late. Something else would come up that was a higher priority for the patient as far as symptoms or whatever. So I started trying to figure out how to have elements of this conversation throughout the year, pretty much on any visit. It's part of my routine care. And when I did that, I found it was very helpful. Some of your listeners are in their clinicals already, and they already know what a problem list is. And I would identify the top chronic illness on their problem list and start to use that to build an advanced care plan strategy. And so I would look at that diagnosis and I would decide, is this diagnosis a cancer type? which means you have a high level functioning capacity and then you have a quick decline over the last, say, two months to a year after before dying. Was it a chronic organ failure type like COPD, heart failure, or was it a frailty dementia? Most of us are going to have frailty dementia. And if it was one of those, then I would be able to develop a discussion with the patients because each one of those has action plans that would help the patient understand, okay, if you have this illness, here's some symptoms of when it's getting worse. Here are some decisions you may have to face at those times in terms of possible treatments. And here are some skills that you can have in terms of preparing for that. And there are actually nine phases along the, from pre-diagnosis all the way to dying. But advanced care plan is really just an action plan for the end of life. And so I would think about it like that. And as you explain other action plans, you can also explain that as well. And now you have more of a context for these discussions that the patient can actually grasp and feel empowered by. 
That's an interesting way to view that. I hadn't thought about it that way before. I like that. That can be very useful. Well, is there any way that you would like the audience to reach out to you if they have more questions? Yes. My email is fjones at caringen.com, C-A-R-I-N-G-E-N-D.com. My website is www.caringend.com. Perfect. Well, Dr. Forrest Jones, I think we have a lot of useful information here. It's definitely a topic that we need to cover more often so we don't get thrown off when you first reach that sort of clinical setting. And I'm glad that there are more resources that the audience can search you through and get more of their questions answered. Yeah, I'd like to follow that more. And when you're in primary care, it's not something you have to wait for one event. You can actually take advantage of your care over time. Yes, very true. Well, Dr. Jones, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, Chase. Thanks for having me. The Rounds to Residency podcast is powered by Med School Coach. To access Med School Coach services, like USMLE tutoring or residency admissions advising, visit our website at medschoolcoach.com. Good luck as you prepare for your board exams, and we hope you tune in again next time.